Hey everybody, welcome back to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, the Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And the TeamCast is a show where Dr. Preston Klein and I and our guests discuss all things mission critical teams. MCTs are teams of four to 12 people, indigenously trained, that solve rapidly emergent, complex, adaptive problem sets, and who work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. However narrow the definition of mission-critical teams, and whether you're on one or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for being here, and once again, enjoy the TeamCast. Today I speak with professional storyteller Claire Murphy. From main stage theaters to medieval round towers, Claire's been a professional storyteller for 14 years now. She's performed in more than 20 countries, telling stories for all kinds of audiences. Her performances include shows such as The King of Lies and political folkloric sets to playful pieces which explore where quantum physics, philosophy, and mythology meet. She's story told for the president of Ireland and the writer's room of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Claire also performs at festivals, art centers, universities, public and private events, conferences, and schools. And she teaches for us at the Mission Critical Team Institute. But what Claire actually teaches are core communication skills, not just theatrical performances, but real human-to-human connection skills. Before I share the outline of what Claire and I discuss, let me briefly talk about the telling of story as a skill and why I think we need it on any high-performing team. Our careers have a story arc. Our training events have a story arc. Our acute daily and nightly missions have an arc. The briefings we give have a story arc. The books and the films we love, such as Star Wars, are based on well-structured story. And all communications that we share with each other at the end of the day are really just in pursuit of as much common understanding as possible so that any team that we're on can move forward as efficiently and as high-performing as we all desire. And at the end of the day, building images of success is what we're after on high-performing teams because if we know what right looks like, then we can replicate what right looks like. But extracting the knowledge from, say, the best performers on our team, as you all know, at the Mission Critical Team Institute, we work on this idea of the tacit knowledge transfer problem, meaning you might know how to ride a bike, but can you describe how to ride that bike? And a big part of storytelling is getting the knowledge out of the most experienced people's minds and into the rest of the team so everyone can perform at their level. In our conversation, Claire and I, of course, talk about her background. We also talk about story or briefing structure. We discuss speaking in technicolor, building context. We talk about stories that go nowhere and that never get resolved. We talk about communicating to one person in order to talk to everyone 
rather than trying to talk to everyone, which leaves us talking to no one. We talk about telling epic stories by way of what you observed or what you experienced. We discuss getting a team's brain out in the open for everyone to learn from that collective experience. We talk about burning down libraries, origin stories, discovering what right looks like, embedding images of high performance in each other's minds. We talk about what kind of story do you want to tell? How did it kick off? Where did the story start? What complications ensued? What crisis did you experience? What was the climax? What ended up happening? What was the eventual resolution? Talk about putting all these ideas together to simply do what I mentioned earlier, which is share, for lack of a better term, a common operating picture of what we want our team to do and what high performance really looks like. Bear with a couple of audio glitches in the beginning. Around one-third of the way through, it sounds like I have a massive fan behind me, which is my computer damn near overheating. But I was excited to have this talk with Claire. I was excited to share it with the community. So without further delay, once again, enjoy this conversation on the TeamCast with Irish-born storyteller Claire Murphy. So let's start here. Let's go, if you could take me, before we even get to what you do now as a storyteller, what you do with us with Mission Critical Teams, you can go back to Claire as maybe not three years old, but Claire had six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever, maybe high school age. How does one arrive as a storyteller, um, as one does here today in this conversation? What, what took you on this path? So I became a storyteller officially as a job when I was 30. So that's 14 years ago. I, looking back, can clearly see the trajectory of how I got here, but it took me a long time to see that trajectory. So as a kid, my dad was an actor by night. Now, he worked for the government during the day, but actor by night, like a, you know, like a superhero. And uh, so we were brought to performance all the time. So I was, by the time okay. I was four, I was watching people perform. And we were learning stagecraft all the time. Okay. My mom was a, she's now a published poet. We were surrounded by books. And so books and stories were there constantly. And we used to also be told stories, which I thought was really normal until I found out other people weren't. So we were told stories at night, just stuff my mom and dad made up. We were told stories of our village. Like we'd go walking around and we'd hear like the ghost story of that castle or the, you know, the pirate queen that came to our village. And I just like, that was what we did when we went on a walk. So that kind of looking back, I was being storied that whole time when I was a kid. Now, on my own, in my room with my pen and paper, I would be writing down my little stories just for me, you know. Uh-huh. And I say just for me because people would be like, oh, you want to be a writer? We're, you know, you should try and get published. And I always hated that. I didn't really like that pressure, you know. Yeah. So went out into the world, started traveling and working when I was, you know, 17. Had every bad customer service job you can imagine. And that whole time, I was I was writing secretly, you know, just for myself, writing these stories. And around tw- I was 2001, I went back to Ireland and somebody read my writing and said, you should try storytelling. You have a great narrative voice. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. What does that even mean? So she recommended I call some storytellers, which is what I did. You know, brazen as you do when you're 24 and you think, oh, I'll just go figure some stuff out. And I started calling storytellers and I started shadowing and going to festivals and looking at this art form, which was like theatre, but not theatre. 
it was like being an author, but not because there was this whole performative aspect. And I just became obsessed with it. And then about six years into my investigation, my friends were like always talking about this. Come on, like just show us already. So I said, all right. And I started and it was like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you do something, be it a hobby or a job, but as soon as you do it, it just feels like the most natural thing in the world. Mm. And so I'm standing there and it, it doesn't feel hard. It doesn't feel, it, it feels really like breathing. You know, I'm telling this story that was told to me years before and I'm making my friends gasp and I'm going, this is so much fun, you know? Yeah. And that was like January 2006. And suddenly, I say suddenly because it fell very fast, but within a year I was touring internationally and I was being booked for festivals around the world. And I was, so I was like quickly learning my craft, although I had all those back years, you know, that led to that point. But then I was like, acquire stories. What do I do? What do I do? Learn, learn, learn. And within two years of performing, people were asking me to teach. So that was even better because then in order to teach, as you know, you have to break down what you're doing and what you know and how you know what you know. So, right. so that was this whole other trajectory. So in the last 14 years, it's been this balance between performing and teaching and exploring what, what story is and why it serves us. And, uh, mechanically, Claire, just because I think it's interesting, uh, what happens between getting booked for uh, performance storytelling and when someone says, will you, will you come teach? Meaning, you know, someone presumably has a group or an audience that wants to be taught. And how, how does that transition? I mean, it, it actually seems obvious and natural, but just out of tactical curiosity, like what were some of the first groups you taught storytelling to and why? So, yeah, that's an excellent question. So the groups I taught were very similar to the groups I was performing in. So I was in a small town on the West Coast of Ireland and I was being invited to libraries and primary schools um, and small festivals. And so people were asking me to come and teach kids or teach teachers or teach librarians because those are the people that were seeing me. So the beginning was very word of mouth, you know. Okay. And then as people started to figure out what I did, then I got invited to a local actors group. And then, you know, as okay. I began to talk about what I was doing, and it was very organic, it just spread outwards. And I realized that it wasn't really teaching people how to be storytellers. It was teaching people how to communicate via story. Yeah. And that, and that, of course, is applicable across the, the board. But yeah, my first people were parents, teachers, and librarians. Because we're at this stage, we're obviously going to keep the narrative going here for, but for the mission critical team community who, who, you know, who we are, obviously you've been to many of our sessions. Um, and for the audience, Claire and I were talking about this offline and, most 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 people have heard this, you know, in my intro, but I want to reiterate something on this idea of you realize you were teaching people how to communicate. And let me, as I say, let me suck the air out of the room here for a second and get on my soapbox. It was when when we first met, Claire, I have a I have a confession to make. Personally, Preston and I, I I mean, I absolutely loved what you did. I was very skeptical of our group accepting what you did because I don't. I do not think I'm some enlightened Buddha by any stretch. But I had been through enough in the last nine years of being out of the military that I got the connection. Right? I knew what we were trying to achieve. I knew what you were doing. But when I hadn't met you, and and when uh, I was at Preston's house after the first course you know, at which you taught, and I said, "Well, what did Claire do? You know, what was in her course?" and 
instead of him telling me anything, he just told me that core story that you use. And I'm thinking like, this must have landed like a turd in a punch bowl, as we say. And it turns out that the groups love you just as much as we do. But I was really, I shouldn't have been thinking for the audience, right? And I was, I, I was thinking that, that it wasn't going to land well. And, but here's, here's what I wanted to get to. And I want you to talk more about the communication pieces because in, in mission critical teams in general, whether it's a, whether it's a, a young person who's brand new, it's a mid-level leader, it, it's a, it's a mid-level to senior NCO, non-commissioned officer. It, it doesn't matter which type of mission critical team that, you know, a person is in. Um, one of the things that I think a lot of people are nervous about when they first start engaging with larger groups other than their, their small unit is this idea of um, briefing uh, up, up or down the chain of command and, and explaining a, a training event, briefing the safety plan, uh, briefing, you know, some mission up the chain of command or, you know, or, or, or anything like this. And so when I first started uh, looking into story for, for totally different reasons, just because I like to, you know, write a little bit for MCTI and, and, and do some things on my own as well, and, and studied a couple of different structures, which the first one that I was exposed to was author Stephen Pressfield, who, who you may or may not know his books, but people in our communities love his books, Gates of Fire, The Warrior Ethos. He wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance. Yep. So S Stephen Pressfield and Sean Coyne, um, editor with 25 years in the industry, they, they started a, a small independent publishing house called Black Irish Books. And Sean Coyne wrote, Sean Coyne wrote the book called Story Grid. And in Story Grid, after 25 years of being an editor, he essentially lays out this five-point story structure. Of course, the larger story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But his his tempo structure is inciting incident, progressive complication, crisis, climax, and resolution, which we'll get to because you have a very similar structure in your notes here. And then I wrote Blake Snyder's Save the Cat, and I wrote my Robert McKee's book, Story. And, and Save the Cat is about screenwriting, but there's a subsequent novel called, or book called, um, save the cat writes a novel and it takes the screenwriting script and puts it in book format, which is all to say, Claire, that here I am, you know, almost 10 years out of the military now. And it, it wasn't that I wasn't paying attention to this when I was in the military, but the big aha moment that I probably had in the last call it five years, six years, just working with our teams and MCT and then seeing where you do is, is the, the most effective, briefing structure for briefing up down chain chain of command is not bullet point to bullet point it's inciting incident progressive complication crisis climax resolution wrapped around it is this opening and closing image which you address here and here's here's the confession claire's like we don't teach it that way and so th this is all to say that here we are in the mission critical, critical team community now having you at all of our courses and i think one of the things that's landing the best is the power of offering a structure to folks coming up in their career and understanding how to communicate internally to their unit, but as important up the chain of command. So having, having said all that, um, I just wanted to maybe get your thoughts on that idea of having that structure and, and it's more than just about the story. It's about a larger communication mechanism.
Yeah, amazing. So I have to start with the skepticism, right? Because right, I was I was also skeptical, right? <laughs> and I think skepticism is really healthy going into any kind of teaching or training because it's it's never working for, from the assumption that what I have to give is going to be useful, which keeps me on my toes. And I'm always asking myself, how do I make this relevant? How do I make this useful? So I was so skeptical yep. when Preston invited me and I was going, really, can I... Can I share this? I know it's worked with all these other teams and all these other places, but this is a very particular type of team. And Preston said, you know, they might not like you. <laughs> you know, come yeah. in, we'll see. I was like, all right, well, I'll go into that premise. That's great. I'll do my absolute best and we'll see what happens, right? Yeah. But what you're getting at with the bullet point and the reporting, I think is so fascinating because I've come across it. So I do some work in the UK with a, a group of veterans, the limbless veterans called Blasma. I work for a company called The Drive Project. And this is one of the first things we saw with them, because the whole thing we do with them is work with them for a week. We have a whole week to unpack their story, and they're telling the story of how they acquired their injury. But it's got to be life before injury, the injury, and then life after, right? But, mm -hmm. but Coleman, they would start, and it would be like, it, these are full-on stories, but it would be really boring. Yeah. Like you say, the eyes just slide off, because what happens, as I learned much later, because I had to start looking into why this was happening, the neuroscience behind it, the brain chemistry behind it is we can only retain so much information that's being given to us in this format. Now, I think somewhere along the line, somebody said in order to be an effective presenter, you have to be succinct and you have to be to the point and you have to be, you know, give it. Da, da, da. And then this became sort of in business. This became what you did. And it just yep. seeped into every other sector. And then this became official business professional language that you know has power and of course unfortunately it may sound clear and crisp and you may cover a huge amount of data but if nobody's listening after the first 30 seconds what does it matter so yeah. like one of the things that i talk about on the course is that great book story proof by kendall haven because he was mm. a scientist turned storyteller which is what we need because all us storytellers, we know this in our bones. We know that story works. But you do need the scientific backup to, to prove it to everybody else. So he went, he had all the same experiences I had, which is the way in which we can embed knowledge and images into people's heads. And they hold on to it for, for years. I've had people come up to me years later and say, you know, I don't remember your name, but I remember the story you told us, like, perfectly. Yeah. You know, and so Kendall Haven goes off and researches all of that and comes back with all of these scientific studies to back up what we know, which is when you fire up the brain, when there's the mirror neurons, the neural entrainment happening. And I tell you the story of growing up in a small village on the outskirts of Dublin. And I tell you about climbing the mountains and how I would get lost and my legs would be covered, you know, in nettles things. And then I'd have to go to the castle where the pirate queen, you hold on to all of that. A whole, a whole series of images are built in your head. But when you give a list of knowledge of data you are activating the language cortex in the brain as best as i understand it but when you tell the story of what you're trying to convey the motor uh, the motor cortex lights up the language cortex lights up oxytocin is getting released dopamine serotonin cortisol all these things so your brain is much more engaged with the information so whoever you're communicating to as you say whether it's up down or across whether it's to your team or to your kid you are landing this fully it's like suddenly you're speaking in technicolor and there's no yep. way they won't remember that. And in terms of mission critical teams, wherever they are, it's essential that what they're transmitting be remembered. So it's kind of essential everywhere. Like sometimes I work with academics and scientists and they desperately need this kind of language as well oh, yeah. because we've, 
we've kind of dehumanized our language. We've stripped out the emotion because you're never supposed to say I and you're never supposed to be passionate. And you're, you know, all of this really <laughs> strange business speak. And unfortunately, what that's done is it's taken all the life out of the language. So of the, the knock on effect is we're losing knowledge and we're not transmitting the wisdom we have in our older members of our teams down or across or up. So what's most interesting to me there is, number one, we've only had, what, 5,000 years of written language. And so, I mean, let's just do the math on, you know, human evolution. And first of all, like the, you know, we, we've told stories to each other forever is the bottom line. That's number one. Number two is what's fascinating to me is how when we really look at the simple things, how obvious it is, is we, we will sometimes stand there with our units and and whatever senior officers in, and we give these bullet point briefs sometimes that are boring. They transmit almost no context, uh, not always, but sometimes this is the case, right? And and that evening, we'll lay in bed and read a story that we love, that makes us laugh or sweat or angry, or but and, and so and we'll go see a movie that does the same thing. And, and we're and I never really reflected and realized that what really affects me as a as a just call it like as a consumer of a book or a film is the same power that we can transmit in how we communicate inside of our teams but as you mentioned that's just not really how it's presented to us you know and and I think we lose so much in translation I just want to share one other thought like on the structure you know keep pulling this thread is I had a boss years ago tell me like Coleman every time you come into this room this conference room for you know a conversation or to brief me, you know, he was senior to me by quite a bit. I don't even think he was intending to talk about storytelling, but he said, make sure you do three things. You frame up the context of the problem for me. That's first. Then you give me the scope of where you think you fit in the scenario. And then we get aligned on what to do next. Right? And he clearly wasn't, wasn't giving me some screenwriting narrative, but he, either accidentally or intentionally, he was essentially like forcing me to build context, fill in the middle, and and bring the conversation to some resolution, and that was very useful to me. I think we can just do do more of that, obviously, you know, to get even better. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, he gave you a gift there. But one of the things I want to go back to with what you were just saying is that idea of like it's never taught to us, it's never modeled to us, and it's worth unpicking or unpacking the all that stuff that's going on in your head while you're not telling stories. Like you say, you lie in bed and read a book. And I know you read a ton of books and that's where you get the pleasure. Now there's, there's a disconnect there because you think if I'm giving a briefing or a report, it shouldn't be pleasurable. I shouldn't be telling a story because a story is something I enjoy. Something else I've heard the team say is, you know, I asked them, does anyone on your team tell stories? And there's this kind of knowing laughter and they go, yeah, yeah. we got one guy who tells who's the storyteller. Right. And that's loaded yeah. with context. So <laughs> yeah. being the storyteller is seen as being the braggart, being the guy who's always talking, making it about them or 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 worse, telling stories that go nowhere. So never giving the context, never getting to the resolution, because your clear structure there that you keep coming back to is essential. Now you can subvert the structure, you can move it around if you're really good, but ultimately that's what you need. You need a beginning, yep. middle, and end. You need an inciting incident. You need a clear understanding of the problem, which seems to be, for a lot of people, the most difficult thing to explain. And then it needs to be resolved, yeah. or you need a trajectory for where you're ending your story. But because yeah, there's yeah, all yeah. these myths around storytelling being a soft, a soft skill, and it's right. also how people lie, you know, 
all of that stuff means we think if we tell a story in a meeting, we're somehow maybe being vulnerable or we're being too soft. We're using emotional language and all of that makes us look less than professional. Whereas the most effective yeah. leaders you've seen and I've seen in any sector are the ones that use story to land the message that they want to embed in their teams. Yeah. And of, of course, you know, Claire, we uh, well, I interviewed Andrew Huberman and, you know, we really care about the physiology of performance. And I don't want to stress anybody in a briefing, but if you tell a good story that incites emotion enough, we know that stress activates the hippocampus and memory. And so we want to raise people's blood pressure enough with enough intentional storytelling that it embeds the memory. And um, this this team cast with Claire for the audience will air before my team cast with Harry Moffat. But I recorded with Harry yesterday and we were talking, I've, I've, I've intentionally avoided like these very strict team casts on just leadership. But a couple of people have asked for a deeper conversation on leadership. So I thought Harry was the best to inter- interview. And I was trying to get Harry to tell me, you're going to love this, Claire, to tell me some very specific examples, which he did. But every single time I asked Harry to talk about inflection points in his career where he really learned something about leadership, saw something that was unique, saw something he didn't like, what did he do? He told me a story about guys like, you're going to love this name, Big Juke Six, I guess was his call sign or his name or his nickname. And Harry spent... 20 minutes telling me about Big Juke 6 and his examples of, and he told me stories, you know, and um, I think it, you know, sitting there last night knowing we were going to record this morning on this topic, I was kind of like subconsciously, but consciously chuckling that this is Claire's point. Yeah. And do you think he avoided telling stories about himself? Oh, he definitely did. Yeah. He's one of us. I mean, he's, he's absolutely one of us, you know, and it's, it's a challenging topic. I mean, you, you should... If you have some more reflections on that, given our audience, Claire, you should talk a little bit more about what you you have observed in us and our resistance to, uh, to, to learn how to do it well, meaning talk about ourselves. So th- one of my great joys of teaching on the courses is the evening when everyone's relaxing and we get a good old fashioned session, like a story session going. Yeah. And because it's not official the bodies relax, you know, people start to talk. What I've observed in your community and and with the veterans in the the UK as well is it's a society of silence. And it's, it's that way for a very good reason. And I understand all the reasons behind it, but there's a huge negative side to it. So it's mostly male. It's um, mostly extremely modest uh, men. And men have a harder time, right? You have a harder time communicating. So you're told to be quiet and you're told to not talk about things. So you start there with that. And yeah. then you join, then you join the community. And there's a there's an added incentive not to speak, which is, you know, because of the work you're doing and all of that. And then you've got this idea around talking about yourself is a is a negative thing, and it always will be a negative thing. And you don't want to be arrogant or any of that. The downside to all of that is without telling stories about your lives and the things you've done, be they uh, amazing or terrible, uh, you don't make meaning out of them for yourselves. And so you don't you don't get the depth of the lesson that you could get by reflecting on it. Now, I'm seeing the same in the sports world. I'm seeing the same in these mostly male worlds, which are guys fighting really hard to do the best they can to always be learning, to always be developing 
you know, looking for all the strengths they want to develop, but not wanting to talk about themselves or their achievements, right? Because of how that's perceived. And I, I get it. That's a really good intention. But look at how often Preston tells stories from his experiences, right? Oh, like, constantly. Yeah, constantly. He's great at it too. And he's great at it. And you never feel like he's bragging, right? Because he's just using a personal experience to act as a metaphor for something he's trying to explain, be it about anger or be it about resistance or dynamics or whatever. And that's where the real learning is. So there's a huge difference between Coleman Ruiz telling the story. And I, you know, I remember sitting around with you and, and you talking about, you know, some of those epiphanic moments in your life where you went that, you know, this is really hard. What can I do to change my life and go where I want to go? And you were able to talk about that in a way that was reflective and insightful and wasn't banging your drum. So yeah. I think the society of science that you live in means that nobody wants to say anything about themselves for fear of being judged as arrogant. But talking about yourself isn't synonymous with being arrogant or being a braggart. There is a way to do it. And there is a way to do it well. And it's focusing on the lesson and, you know, understanding story structure, knowing when to stop talking. All of those things can be learned. And that's another thing I'd like to add, which is a lot of your guys think either you're a good storyteller naturally or you're not. Right. And that's it. You're either good at it or you're not. And that's just not the case. There's a small handful of people in the world who are, inverted commas, naturally good storytellers because of the family or location they're raised in. But actually all human beings tell stories and everybody can get better at it just through the practice of doing it, which is the uncomfortable yeah, bit. I mean, at the very least, you're, telling some stories in your own head, right? Even if they're not verbal at some point. So and I think you're right, Claire. It, it was a huge encouragement to me when I met Preston in 2011. Um, <laughs> way back machine here, at least a little bit. I was saying, there was, it actually happened in our first phone call. I was saying something to him because I had been in, you know, so many training roles and obviously, you know, Mission Critical Team Institute really started with instructor cadre. We do more things now, but um, and that still is the focus instructor cadre, but uh, we were having this conversation about advanced training versus basic training and the different things that you see in raw materials at basic training and, and, and advanced training with more experienced people. And, and I said something to the effect, which folks like us often do is like, well, I'm, I am definitely not the smartest guy in the room here. So take this with a grain of salt. And he said, Coleman, look, you're going to have to stop doing that. Not because I want to turn you into some, or that you should turn yourself into some know-it-all. Um, but you have to understand you have a lot of experience. Your colleagues have a lot of experience. It, you're, it is not helpful to your teammates and people around you. If you stop a story one third of the way through and say, I I'm just a dummy. And it was very, it was very helpful to me working with all of the, you know, mission critical teams and other places in my life too, to understand what you what you have here and of course we're not even off the, the first page of your paper but we don't have to totally follow the paper Claire but was this idea you just discussed about you're doing a couple things you're sharing a broader experience to to map to particularly other younger people and colleagues um, because when folks come into new mission critical teams it's a very intense environment what most of us are looking for when we're younger is just what does right look like what does right look like? And an experienced storyteller, or not even storyteller, an experienced operator like Harry's teammate, Big Juke Six, who can contextualize scenarios for younger operators is number one. And number two, if you don't like the language of there I was, all you have to do is make an observation about 
a situation you were in. And you're not saying it's right. You're just saying it happened. And that's, that is education in and of itself. Yes. Yes. And when you tell a story, there's a whole amount of emotional intelligence that starts kicking in because there's emotional journeying. So if you are teaching new cadre, you telling them about difficult situations you go through better prepares them for when they go through it. It also normalizes what's going on for them because inside every story, all stories contain universal currency, the currency yeah. of human existence, you know, fear, going up against an enemy, uh, being reprimanded by, you know, someone in authority, uh, failing, succeeding, overcoming, you know, all of these things are in every story from around the world. So when you talk about your experiences, you give other people a way to make meaning out of their experiences. When you don't, so we're seeing this a lot in medical. I've been asking a lot of mm. questions in the medical community here in the UK just in the last three yeah. months. There's another society of silence. And their, their, their approach is, how do I not fail today? That's, That's our approach, Claire. Right. So I mean, we say our mission is a no-fail mission. That's the language we use even though we know we make mistakes all the time, but, but keep going. You were saying the medical folks. But that's, the, that's, that's a really difficult way to enter every single day when you know, and you know now, that failure is guaranteed. We're all going to make mistakes. They, they have a society of silence where their objective is not to fail, not to make any mistakes, not to be the one on the team that lets anybody down. And so they don't, they don't tell any stories. Everyone's left to get on with it themselves. And a friend of mine who's, right. who's what they call a physician associate, she was saying that they'd have these consultants come in, these hugely experienced people, Coleman, who have seen all kinds of extreme types of cases and surgeries, and they would go through the patient profile and it would all be very bullet point. It would all be very data-based. And she said, but if at the end of it, they had a few minutes and they happened to relax, they'd say, you know, I saw a case like this 10 years ago. And she said, at the end of a lecture, if this ever happened, this was always everybody's favorite bit of the lecture, but it feels like an indulgence or a luxury. But the yeah. knowledge transfer happening in those moments, if you or Harry or whoever can get past the, you know, and I know you, you are able to contextualize it, but if you can get past the kind of ego thing of, I don't want to be seen as this way and actually tell the story, you suddenly give everyone else access to a world of knowledge that otherwise they would never have. I think, um, and I will say in the last maybe even only two to three years, Claire, moving around just more, these teams aren't new to me, athletic teams, college, professional athletics, other mission critical teams, almost universally, what I'm about to bring up, which you've already brought up, becomes almost like the number one theme that in, in business as well. That, that, that are people are trying to crack the code on because I beat the drum on after action reviews and debriefs and lessons learned so much um, that I think maybe just this incites the conversation. But what I hear a lot from athletic coaches is athletes don't want to uh, talk in front of each other, right? For, for all sorts of reasons. Some of it's age, some of it's age disparity, some of it's rookie doesn't want to speak up in front of a hall of famer veteran who's still playing, you know, and I get it all because I was, I was like that myself when I was younger. Um, and the example that I, that I try to share or the fear that I try to share is picture a professional athletic team in, you know, European football or, or cricket or in the U S you know, hockey, baseball, football, basketball, it doesn't matter. 
and you have multiple future Hall of Famers on your team, guys who have won championships already, they will, they will go down in the history books as in the top 10 of players in their given sport ever in the history of the sport. And the environment hasn't been built or conditioned over time to unlock that knowledge. And that person retires in a year. Can, we can't even begin to guess at how much is lost in, in the opportunity that would have been there for knowledge transfer if we, if we work this muscle a little more. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, burning down a library. That's exactly. how much knowledge is lost. Yeah. yeah. And it almost makes me want to pull my hair out in a way, not in obviously not in anger or judgment in like, guys, you, you almost, you, 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 you almost have a moral obligation to do this. I call it like stealing from your teammates is if you choose, if the group, can't break through in a way that you can share these stories. And I think you're stealing from each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's an old proverb in Ireland, a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Like we're stronger together. But I got to go back to your, that interview you did with Daniel Coyle. Yeah. And I don't know the guys you were talking about. So I had to write down their name. But you're talking about RC and Pops at the San Antonio Spurs, right? Wonderful people. Yeah. RC, I know personally, uh, Coach Popovich, I don't. Right. But you're talking about that night where they where they they really failed and they shouldn't like they shouldn't have inverted commas failed and it was yeah. you know and he he brings them all out to dinner and over that dinner I imagine as over every dinner as I mean and you said he spends all this money on food and drink what a genius because yeah. it's it's the safe place to tell stories and I'm talking yeah. with a lot of teams and of course there's loads of different it's a it's a composite of problems right that behind why these cultures on sports teams are in these ways like there's a high turnover of coaches there's a high turnover of players who's holding the culture where does that dominant culture come from but I heard some stories a little while back about some coaches that you know invite everyone over for dinner to their house and yep. they sit around the table together and there's a there was a guy an American senator called George Mitchell who came over and helped well he was incredibly instrumental in navigating the peace process in northern ireland and one of the things he did when it got really difficult was he brought these people who were at very opposite ends of the political spectrum who were spending all day arguing over what they would and wouldn't do brought them all to dinner and his one rule was no politics at dinner you can talk about anything except politics so what do they do they start telling stories about their kid about the football yeah. game, about the food that they cook at home, about their wives. And you start you start getting the full picture of the full person, which I think in sports can be what's missing. How do you make team cohesion? Well, they've all got to be human beings, but how do you know, how do you find out who that human being is? They're more than the sum of that what their body can do on a field. And it, it came up again in the I love this, the Wipro thing in the Yeah, in Wipro, the, the call center in India. The fact that they got in that first experiment, you know, they either told them how it was going to be at the company or the second experiment was they asked them, who are you and what would you do on a desert island? So right. they, that person's story starts to become part of the Wipro story. And right. That's where you build culture. That's where it starts to work. Yeah, the, um, the organization can't impose a culture on a person. The people, it just... I'm not sure why we sometimes just fall into those traps, Claire, of like, you know, I, when I, when I got a little bit more senior, I was in advanced training, I had this flash of, 
you know, fleeting brilliance, maybe, I don't know, was uh, at training more senior, like troop commanders in our case, like folks who have been in, you know, 10, 12, 14 years-ish when I was in advanced training. And I just noticed that, you know, we say in the Navy that a bitching sailor is a happy sailor and always, everyone's always complaining about the Navy, right? They hate the Navy or they love the Navy. And the Navy doesn't really have a culture is the truth. And neither does the Army and neither does the Marine Corps and neither does the Air Force. My opinion, Claire, is that people love or hate their immediate supervisor and their immediate peers in the Navy. And then they say, I hate or love the Navy. And so what we would try to remind young leaders about, particularly overseas and back, overseas and back, overseas and back, combat action, combat action is, look, this isn't about, even though the Wipro story that Dan Coyle wrote about and we talked about was about retention at a call center, I didn't really, frankly, I didn't really care about retention in the Navy. We had much bigger things to focus on than just retention. But my observation was, if you watch people say if they love or hate the Navy, they really love or hate their immediate supervisor or or one or two supervisors above them. And um, and I don't, I think that's a part of how culture emerges, which is how we behave as immediate peers and supervisors or subordinates. And the, the culture uh, bubbles up. It doesn't, it's not imposed on us. Yeah. And you said it, I don't know, you said about half an hour ago, you said everyone's looking to crack the code, whether it's yeah. cracking the code on leadership or the perfect team or performance or, right. People want an easy fix. And that's why there's all these books, right. All these books about how you build teams and all. But what you're saying is that the culture bubbles up that we make the culture we're in and we have a lot of wisdom in the groups that we're in, but we want it to come from a higher authority down to us. And something that I've talked about. Only if we like it though. Only if we like it, only if we agree with it. But there's something, it's kind of tangential to this, but I think about how I'm really shocked to hear you say there's, you know, that there's no culture in the army and Navy. That's, that's a nice eye, eye opener for me. I think about how, story contributes to culture and I think about well, like when I met the firefighters you know on, on on MCT they're not telling their origin stories mm. and I find this incredible and it goes back to being strong silent modest men right and that yeah. society of silence don't talk about it because then you'll be seen as bragging there are some incredible origin stories that nobody's telling and an origin story allows you to belong to something even if you're brand new it allows you to belong to something, even if you're about to retire. If you look at religions, all religions are they're just steeped in mythology. Mythology is what's going to hold us together. These creation myths that are absurdly large and, you know, almost impossible, often impossibly non-human. Yep. But every organization, every sector has an origin story. And why isn't that being told? And why isn't... So there's a, there's a writer called Karen Armstrong, who I'm a huge fan of. She oh, has yeah. this way of taking enormous ideas and, and distilling them into tiny books, which is my kind of, my kind of writer, you know, Yeah. she did a short history of myth and she also did a short history of God and she did a short history of Islam. And, you know, she's incredible thinker, but she talks about in Sumerian culture, how this you know, so long ago, I think it was about 5,000 years ago. I'm sorry. I'm bad with the big numbers, but she talks about the need to tell myth regularly, even though everyone knew the story. There's one, there's a saga called the Enuma Elish. And she said at the time of great difficulty or a new year or a wedding. So it's like quite, it's quite a, a variety of times you can do this. Yeah. 
the myth is told and it's an impossible myth with an impossible monster and a hero and a battle ensues and of course people die and evil is overcome and she said people need it as a catharsis they need it as a communal act to go through and and come out the other side knowing that although things are hard now they will get better and I think about what, what the MCTs go through in all their different teams, in all their different iterations. It's always hard. And to belong to something greater than yourself gives you strength, be that a religion or a club or, a you know, whatever it is. And why aren't people using that origin story to, to support the culture that's bubbling up? Yeah, yeah. And the, there's, there, in the traditional way of thinking about culture, Claire, of course, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, fire astronauts, they have their cultures, if we think about it in the traditional way, top down, but let's think about how that develops. As you and I both know, the, the younger folks in MCTs are typically very quiet. Who, who sets the culture then? The more senior people who don't have any rank risk, they tell the most stories, they imprint the culture. I'm not convinced that's the best way to build a team. I mean, I'm not saying the person who's in year one should be setting the culture for um, you know, a 200-year-old fire department. That's not my point. My point is, is we, we are constantly in dialogue with how to build and maintain high-performance teams. And I know from my own experience and experience of a lot of other people's that I know the one way not to build a high-performance team is let only the senior people imprint the culture and the origin story because they're going to forget a little bit about what it was like to be down in the trenches. And so my, my view is we we do a better job, like you said, Claire, of, of, of telling an origin story. And it's not, uh, it's not this constant sit around the cafeteria and tell a, a uh, you know, a 15 year narrative about your childhood. That's not the point. <laughs> the point no, is like, but that's important, you know, Coleman, because that's what immediately everyone I work with, that's what they jump to when you say the word storytelling. That's what they, they imagine. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I they think you. it's a, no, no, I'm glad you did. What They jump to uh, just like the story of my childhood. Yeah. So, oh, if we're going to tell an origin story, it's going to take all day. It's going to be really boring. Right. You know, it's going to be laborious. Uh-uh. Like powerful storytelling, which you see all the time because governments and marketers and all kinds of people use storytelling and they manipulate us all the time into how they yeah. want us to feel. So an origin story has the possibility of being short and powerful and increasing belonging rather than decreasing belonging. Yeah, yeah. I was I was sharing this with Harry and shared it with Jimmy Hatch in my interview with him as well as one of the things I regret. The guys I, I worked closest with and know really well, I would say I know them pretty well. But given what I know now, I realize we missed huge opportunities because there's guys that I worked with who I love and I would take a bullet for still today that I can't really tell you. And I think it's a core question to teams in mission critical team environments. I can't tell you why they joined. And I, I don't know. I never asked them. And and it only struck me, Claire, when I was getting out of the Navy. And it, it was a weird time to get out. I was at year 13. Um, and it was a weird time in general. And so I had some great bosses. And, and one of the bosses that I really liked, I remember sitting down in the office with him. And and he, he had five or six like preconceived ideas about why I was getting out, which were all very like traditional corporate, call it like headquarters perspective, like, Coleman, I bet you're getting out because this, this, and this. And I'm not going to use his name here. I said, boss, let me just, if, if you have five minutes, let me just back up for a second. And I told him why I came in in the first place and the back, a little bit of my background. And he, and he, he's a great guy. So he admitted, he's like, Coleman, I had, I basically had you all wrong. And I said, you, 
it wasn't about wrong or right. It was just that you never asked. And, and the truth is, Claire, I never asked, you know, guys that I worked with. And I think we miss being able to accelerate, as Dan Coyle was telling me, um, you know, some of these tactics that he learned writing the culture code and the talent code mm-hmm. is I, I think some teams missed the chance to accelerate their team's performance by understanding why a person joined the MCT in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a hundred other questions behind that question that never get asked. Right. And you didn't ask because you never, ever saw anyone else ask it. And I think right. you said something there a couple of minutes ago about, you know, the first, the guy in his first year isn't going to speak up, isn't going to contribute to the culture because he's not seeing that modeled. And what happens is then that you diminish all that experience. You diminish. So I remember, so two different examples of this. I remember talking with a team recently on an MCT course and, and I was saying, what, what are the big problems you foresee? And one of them is that uh, the training you go through in the first year is repetitive and can be you know, boring, you can sort of not, you can lose your edge. And I said, all right, tell me how it was for you when you went through it. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, tell me the story of going to basic training. Yeah. And he, he started and I was like, no, no, like, tell me in more detail. So then he went into super detail. Right. And I was like, okay, this is really interesting because the guys were laughing at him. And, uh, cause <laughs> he was we telling do. me about getting the coffee and, you know, <laughs> And so I let him keep going, though. And once in a while, I just punctuate it with a question and say, well, well, how did that make you feel? All right. And how did, okay, so you were getting bored. Okay. But, and and the guy above you was just giving you the same exercise week in, week out, right? And how are you at the end? And Oh, okay, right. And then I told it back to him as a story. And it flipped it because they had been laughing, going, this is really boring. But actually what what we got was this massive insight into how it is for everyone in year one. Yeah. And, and it, and I asked the team, like, what does that mean? What, what does that tell us about the teams? They're like, okay, it tells us that they're hungry for knowledge, that they're this, that all of these insights that this guy was not openly saying were right there because that's how we learn. And the other example I want to give is I was talking to some, uh, some rugby coaches recently and they were saying, how do we make the team room more interesting? We're trying to keep yeah. our players, you know, engaged. Uh, should we move the furniture right now? I'm, I'm always a big fan of moving furniture. It's just good good to change things up but I said okay yeah you can move the furniture and I said how many of you guys were players it's like a few hands go up and I go right did you ever get bored in a meeting and they were like all like the every ha- single meeting every meeting all the hands <laughs> went up I was like right why did you get bored and you could see them kind of going and they had to travel back home into that time of that meeting and put themselves in their chair which is this is how you make meaning out of your experiences why are you bored What's that coach doing that's 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 making you switch off? And then what did you actually want to be happening? And how do you take that knowledge, that tacit knowledge that you have in your body, be it as an MCT or on a sports team, and now you're now you're an instructor, now you're a coach, take that. Like like you were saying, it's like you you have all this, but because you've been, you know, authority was above you, giving you the culture from top down, you didn't have the agency to go, I'm gonna act on this. This is this is some wisdom I'm gonna contribute. So there's, I feel like I'm kind of jumping around a lot, but there's, there's so much in that, in, in how we, how we share that knowledge. Yeah. I want to, um, just share one more on this meandering first 30 minutes we've done here and then go into your basic truths a little bit and pull some of these threads. Cause I, I think they'll, they'll be, obviously they'll be interesting, but, um, again, like the macho sitting around, 
It, it, except, like you said, we do it at night around the fire, typically when there's drinks, but in every other environment, we don't touch it, right? And if if anyone is a, and most of my peers have seen all the episodes, but if anyone, even if you're not a basketball fan, any high-performing team uh, has to watch The Last Dance, the 10-episode documentary of, you know, the Chicago Bulls and obviously focused on Michael Jordan. Not surprising to to anyone who knows even a little bit about Phil Jackson, but the fact that at the end of some of the most well-paid athletes on the planet, sponsored by the biggest brands in the world, who have cameras on them all the time, who have been put up on the biggest pedestal in sports, after six championships, Phil Jackson still had the awareness and the courage to tell that type of team to write down on a piece of paper what this team means to you, bring it to a team meeting and have a kumbaya session where they read it to each other and then burn it, right? This is like, okay, so Claire, get the, get the, I'll test myself here for a second storytelling. Get a picture in your mind of a team room of special operators and the team is, is post-deployment and, and all the awards have been given and all the whatever is done and, and you come home from leave and, and folks are going to transition out and the team room has weapons on the walls and, and it's just a storied place, right? You just don't, you can't go in one. And 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 Coleman sashays in and, and tells everybody, today we're going to write something on a piece of paper and read it to each other. And then we're going to burn it in this coffee can. I would have been strung up on the yard arm and I wouldn't have had the courage to do it. Now, knowing Scottie Pippen and maniacs like Dennis Rodman and, and, and who who we all look to as sporting heroes, they did this. This is what great teams do. And I think we miss those opportunities when we don't construct an environment to do something like that. I mean, even I was shocked. Larry, I, I know enough about Phil Jackson. He's a little bit different than the normal, typical, like, mm-hmm. coach of mm-hmm. that type. Um, but the fact that he had Michael Jordan writing poems and reading them to his teammates is, is yep. was surprising to me. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's doing a couple of things there, right? So it goes back to the, I think they were, they call the signifiers of belonging. I don't know what Dan Coyle called them. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, so when you reaffirm your connection to people and, and like he said, it has to be done all the time, all the time to feel like you're part of a team. So them reading that out does that. But the other thing he's, he's accessing is ritual. And yeah. Phil Jackson said that when he grew up, there were a lot of native Americans that came and rented the houses on his land. And, exactly. he, and he got, really and he wasn't you know all the other white people around were like you can't hang out with those kids and he was going well why not and so what he had was he had immersion through friendship I think and and fell in love with that culture and from the little I know about Native American uh, peoples is that ritual is a massive part of their being in the world and in fact all human beings right yeah I'll be honest with you have ritual at their heart that's what religion is and so I think by getting them to write down and burn it in the can, it's it accesses this ancient part of ourselves that we need access. And if you want to create powerful teams of of strong men who can, you know, do these things, r- ritual is part of the way we go and part of the way we come back. And it marks the beginning and end of things. So I think he's a he's got a bit of genius there when it comes to, like you say, straying from the path, going his way, but knowing it's going to make everyone feel included in this thing that we're doing together. Yeah, yeah. And look, I'll put a pin in this, Claire, but the, you know, for now, but the work 
we know a couple of people, not everybody, over at the New Zealand All Blacks, and you're very aware of them. And and I, I'm the type of person who will, will watch. I'll watch the haka on YouTube and, and be like sweating. I'm so excited. That's a, that's exactly the type of team I always you know was in and, and wanted to be in. But 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 why didn't I suggest doing a haka? Right. We didn't I, I watched somebody else do it. But it, and it's one of those things where you, you, you think about, you know, it's not like a troop or a firefighting unit has to step out of the ready room and go do a haka before. they. That's not the point. The point is this ritualistic, visceral communication mechanism that needs to be or it doesn't need to be. I would encourage us to think about how to make it more of a um, investment in in how we communicate with each other and less of just, you know, bullet points. Less of bullet points, less intellectual. The AAR you were talking about is part of that ritual. And yeah, incorporating those things in will will make us better communicators and better teams, I think. Let's jump, Claire, to some of the basic truths of storytelling. I have some notes here, but I want you to go through the ones. You can go through all of them if you like, but maybe go through the ones that you think are most important. And I'll, I'll pull some threads that I think are important to the to the audience. Just, uh, I'm not looking at my at the list that you've got in front of you, so I'm just going to say a couple that come yeah. to mind. Just yeah. One is respect your audience. So that means a lot of different things, but one is, you know, the main aspect of that is you, your audience, your team, whoever it is, they're giving you their time and their attention, the two most valuable things that they can give. It's not, it's not money, it's not anything else, but time and attention. So respect that by knowing what you want to say, being ready to say it, knowing the story you want to tell, telling it well, reading the room, respect their intelligence, uh, don't overplay it, don't underplay it. So there's a lot in that, but I'd say respect your audience and keep that relationship open. If you're the only person in the room speaking, and this might not be on my list, but speaking is always a two-way conversation, even if no one else is allowed to speak. Yeah. And that is vital. Because if you're just, I'm going to walk into this room and deliver my message my way and they better get it, is that's yeah. that's guaranteed to fail. But if you see everything as a two-way conversation, you'll always be paying attention to how things land. And that requires a certain amount of flexibility and adaptability and improvisation, which I know you talk about a lot. And I think it's vital because then you can be responsive. I mean, your message might have to change, your content may have to change, but you're staying in conversation with the room. Other basic truths. I got a great piece of advice in in a briefing course I took, Claire, and you can you can pull this thread for me here in terms of storytelling as well. Is not in a million years would I have thought of this quip in the way it was taught to me. When you speak to one person, you speak to everyone, and when you speak to everyone, you speak to no one. And and now that I was told that, I, I watch it, and I, I've used this skill since the day I was taught it. Which is, if you're one of forty people, Claire, if I meet you ahead of time. So going into a room, 500 people or 50 people, Mm -hmm. what I try to do is meet like 10 people or less and make sure I know exactly where they're sitting and and I don't forget their first names. And during the entire brief, I I talk straight to them using their name. So Claire, Preston, et cetera. In the middle of the brief, I'm reinforcing things and saying, Claire, you know, we talked this ahead. It's a punctuation of the delivery. Right. And it was because of this advice I got, which was if you speak to one person, if I'm speaking to Claire... Every other person now is sitting on the edge of their seat thinking their name might be called, even if I don't know their name, right? But if you just speak to the whole group, people have this weird 
um, it's almost like a collective law of whatever, like mass groups or something. They can just not pay attention because they know you're not going to you're not going to speak directly to them anyway, because you don't have any idea who they are. And so there's this this in this communication idea you're sharing is is very intentionally speaking straight to one person, which makes everybody else pay attention differently. Yeah. I mean, because I think about like, so if I'm on stage and I'm telling to thousands of people and I, I'll never get a chance to meet them beforehand, I'm thinking about my version of that, which is, yeah, yeah, I, they, I absolutely maintain a sense of intimacy because there is something that happens. We can shut off when we're telling to larger audiences. Uh, the speaker can get quite scared because it's like, how am I going to speak to 50 people or 500 people or whatever it is? And so you, your mechanism for speaking right. radically shifts towards anxiety, which creates a whole knock-on effect with speed and breath and verbal tics and physical yep. tics and all of that. But as you say, if you keep that sense of intimacy and you're landing it, whether you know the people or not, but it's that thing of talking with people, not at people. Yeah. You know, and it's it's a very specific type of energy which keeps it personal, even if there's thousands of people. And that's when you see those public speakers that are able to do that. I think they're they're maintaining that personal connection, as you say, and not thinking of it as a horde a horde of people yeah. you're trying to talk to. Yeah. It's an anti-anxiety and nervousness trick too, because yes. if you're in a group of whatever, a hundred people or it doesn't matter. And and you have five people to speak to that you met ahead of time or not, or even somebody that sticks out in the audience for some reason, and you speak only to them, you forget that there's 600 people watching you. Yeah. And that you're right. And the anxiety and nerves, listen, they're always going to be there because there's a whole bunch of reasons why they're there. Some very good biochemical reasons and survival mechanisms why they're there. But I would say as well, if you don't know anyone in the audience, you can try my trick, which is assume or basically tell yourself that they are all your close friends. Yeah. Like, like you're saying, but without having had the conversation with those 10 people and something shifts internally, we're like, I am talking to people who know me well and trust me. And you walk out with that energy and people go, oh, he's so relaxed. I, I, because what, so this is a really key one, which is if you feel it, we feel it. So as a speaker, you're transmitting. So if you're bored by what you're talking about, we're going to be bored by what you're talking about. If you, uh, know that you're better than everybody in the room and you are the (laughs) expert on this and I'm going to talk to you about storytelling, right? That becomes very clear and the audience will resist you for it. So being passionate about what you want to say and caring about your audience means that we feel that level of care and we respond to it. So if you feel it, we feel it. And if you see it, we see it. And that that bit is about the story. So when you were saying, imagine walking into a room, uh, you know, full of these guys, these operators, and imagine what, you know, by you seeing it in your mind's eye before you say it, I see it in my mind's eye just after you say it. And this is vital. So if you ever get lost in the middle of a story, the best piece of advice I can give is visualize that moment in the story, see it in your mind's eye, then speak. And it'll, it'll become clear. Yeah. And we, we, the next thing I want to just reinforce that point is this um, clear narrative thread in a story, Mm -hmm. which, which, you know, for many MCTs, if you go through briefing training or whatever, what you'll probably hear is, um, when you're briefing or, or talking to a group, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them the thing you're going to tell them. And then at the end, remind them what you just told them. Yep. It's the same idea, but it's to never forget that. I mean, the only thing you should really have on an index card is a one or two sentences, which is the clear narrative thread. And that's it. Because if you, if you're, if for some reason you end up off tangent or you have a senior or somebody in the room who just interrupts you the whole time and you never, at the end of the day, 
it goes back to, you know, some decision theory done by, you know, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who Daniel Kahneman wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. But, you know, the peak end rule, which is, is typically in experiences, people remember two things. They remember the peak part of the experience, either good or bad, and they remember the end. And so if we take that into storytelling or briefing or whatever, is the clear narrative thread reinforced um, at a peak moment and at the end mm-hmm. will we'll typically like get you through any other mistakes. Yes. Yes. And this is what I find fascinating. We're very focused on mistakes. And so what I do when I'm telling a story and I want to learn it is I boil it down to its bones. So those are, as you say, the, the you know, you called it two lines, but the essential, yeah. the essential things that have to happen for the story to make sense. And some of those can be one single word. You know, one single word bullet point that tells me that piece of the story. And if I know that, I can't get lost. No matter who walks into the room, I know where I need to get to. And so that story map is essential. But a lot of people think they have to learn off a script. They've got this great text. They have to learn it off. But hey, if that's your thing and you've got an incredibly photographic memory, good for you. Right. I'm not a huge fan of learning off scripts for two reasons. One, as you said, if you lose your place, you lose the word then you you will fall out of the story. The other thing is, if you are reciting a script, you're less likely to have a lively, dynamic voice. Yeah. When you're reading something, your voice falls into a set rhythm. And it generally is a rhythm that will turn your audience off. So yeah. I'm like you. Just have a card with a couple of, with the key lines on there, stops you going off tangent. And you will, and like you say, focus on the peak and focus on your conclusion. Bef- before... We go to some basic categories as well, Claire. I wanted to just have you speak about um, imagery and um, and other senses. In, and I wrote a note here, like the recommendation and the reason for obviously us having this conversation with you, Claire, is not to turn interactions within our teams theatrical. That's that's not the point, right? But when, um, when we think about – actually had Preston do this to me back in – 2015 or 16, when he was launching the first pilot courses that he taught at the Graduate School of Education at Wharton, he had a couple different people write some fairly peak experiences, really intense overseas operational experiences. And I wrote some notes for him and he said, well, Coleman, do a couple things for me. Go back into your notes and just add to each one of these segments. What was the temperature the night you guys were out? What did it smell like? And I thought like, this actually sounds kind of silly, but I go through the exercise anyway, because I'm open-minded enough to do it, which is not, I mean, I'm not starting from a good place of open-mindedness, but it was enough to where I, I humored him. And um, admittedly, like when you stop and you think about um, a, a, a point you're trying to make, a brief, a origin story, whatever, and you think about the senses and what is going on, it, you can really pull some imagery that's, that's super useful. Yes. And this goes back to what I call the, the cinema of the mind. You know, this is, what they do in neuroscience is they explain how this is all lighting up the motor cortex, the language cortex, all these, you know, it's not theatrical. We're not trying to get people to be, first of all, we're not trying to turn anybody into storytellers. We're trying to get people to use story to transfer knowledge. That's the idea. When you describe for us that evening, that scene, that moment, the temperature, the coldness on your skin as you reach down and realize that your shoelace were untied as you're wandering through this knee-deep mud and everything in our brain switches on, which allows us that sensorial 
immersion allows us access to a deeper sense of empathy. We can feel where you are. And when we can feel where you are, we can go through the journey into the problem much deeper. And it just stays with us much longer. So story ends up being our teacher. And long after Coleman Ruiz tells that story, six, seven, eight years later, the guy you told it to still carrying it around and still learning from it. So without those sensorial nods and each each person's going to tell stories in their own way. That's the other really important thing is like we're not trying to turn everybody into a carbon copy of you or carbon copy of Preston or whatever or me. Imagine everyone doing an Irish accent like it just wouldn't work. But, you know. <laughs> Each person's got to figure out their storytelling style. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be performative or, or theatrical. But by giving us that way in and telling us what you saw that night, we're there with you. And there's nothing in the world that comes close. Cinema doesn't come close. Theater, books, yeah. nothing comes close to the power of you visualizing something and entering it that way. So so I think imagery is important, yeah. From you know, again, for our audience, Claire, from a, I think about this from a training standpoint as well. Let me use my community and then a community I I didn't train in. I'll use, you know, Navy Navy SEAL teams uh, training and say being at the being at Randall's Island for fire training, FDMY, which, of course, I haven't done. My, my guess is this, as if um, somebody at the training academy is training me, somebody at the fire academy is training me and they say, Coleman, get ready. When you go into the house for the first time, it's really hot. I can I, I can almost guarantee a firefighter's hot and my hot are nowhere close to the same. All right, the, the firefighter would have to describe what hot actually feels like for me to get some training value, you know, for lack of a better description, right? So let's take a guy going into, you know, the training I did, which is one of the most miserable parts of the training we do is sitting in the surf. We call it surf torture. And if I just, Claire, if I tell you it's cold, that just doesn't cut it. Like, trust me, it, it's bone crushing cold. Like it makes your hip flexors turn into piano wires. Your legs feel like they're becoming brittle. The bones are feeling brittle. So that's cold, right? And so my point is like, as a trainer, as a teammate, you can take it from training to operations to anything is just saying something's hot or cold just doesn't complete the message. It also, that translates directly to our understanding of the problem. If we don't understand how dangerous the problem is, if we don't understand the level of threat, then we don't understand why we need to get to the conclusion. So people underestimate or undervalue or undersell the problem, like how cold it was, the effect of that temperature later on in your story when you have to say, I don't know what happens next, but I imagine run up the beach carrying a heavy load. Then the person listening is understanding that it's not just about trying to carry a heavy load up a beach. It's the fact that your legs are frozen almost to a hypothermic state. And the level of strength required to do that then gives them insight into who you are as a person. Yep. Yep. Working with some big wave surfers out in Hawaii, great guys. Um, like they'll tell you, you know, these waves are 60, 70, 80 feet. And, you know, guys that I came up with were comfortable in the water. And these big wave surfers would tell you, yeah, if you crash, it's, you know, you get held under pretty well, pretty, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it feels, it's, it's a kind of a tough crash. And I was like, hold on, <laughs> get like, talk to more, talk to me more about the crash. And they say, well, it basically feels like a VW bus has landed on your head. And I'm like, guys, that is much different crash than you had initially described. Right. And so um, 
we're kind of we're kind of just over reinforcing this point, but I think it's something we need to constantly be mindful of is when we are trainers, teammates, more senior people in an MCT, like landing an airplane on a, on an aircraft carrier, flying into space, fighting wild and fires, whatever it is that you do, we we cannot stop at this is a tough mission, guys. Like that's not sufficient information, mainly for somebody new to our team. Yeah, and because the side effects are a lack of legacy, uh, lack of membership, people, you know, all the side effects that MCTI has identified over the years. You don't tell the stories of what's happening. People don't understand what's happening. They don't understand the value of what's happening. They can't pass on and, all, and so on and so forth. And we and are accidents. And accidents. You know, we, they can have uh, things that happen, of course, happen in 300 seconds or less for us. And we don't, we have to unpack what's going to happen millisecond by millisecond. Obviously, not. You, the group knows what I mean. When things happen, they happen quick. Yeah. And it's hot, it's cold, or it's a bad crash is not enough information. Yeah. Afterwards. Obviously, in the moment, yeah, after- that's fine. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about uh, structure, which will take us at least close to the end of the conversation, Claire. And, and you have um, Gustav Freitag's from 1896, his, his five-step story structure here which of course the paper will be shared on our website and in the show notes and everything, but, and all the references that we talked about. Um, and I referenced the story grid, five part structure, inciting incident, progressive complication, crisis, climax, and resolution. And I just wanted you to go through your, you can go through Freitag's structure. You can just talk about your experience with story structure in general mm-hmm. and some recommendations there for the audience. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I was telling stories for quite a while before I even knew what story structure was. Because actually story structure is pretty intuitive to human beings. Because we've been hearing stories our whole lives, we know that it has a beginning, middle and end. We know that there is a problem and a conclusion. We know there's a problem, resolution and conclusion. But because we take that for granted, we don't go over the obvious. We think it's too simple. It's too simple, Coleman. There must be a more complex yep. structure. I get people ask me all the time, what's the but what's the super book on structure? And look, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of books on storytelling and storytelling structure. Some of them lean towards playwriting, uh, some of them move towards film scripts, towards books. But actually, I would say all of your listeners know exactly what story structure is if they take a moment to think about it. Right? Yep. Because you have been listening and telling stories your whole life. So I would ask everybody to lean in to their personal knowledge because you know when somebody goes off task. So a story has to have a setup. You've got to set up the world you're in. You can do that in very little time. You can do that in a single sentence if you need to. You set up the world, you set up the character, you introduce the problem. There are extenuating circumstances that exacerbate the problem. You get to that that climax, that peak, and then you begin to roll away from the problem, things start to unfold, and there's a conclusion. I'm being really vague on purpose because some people are going to say, that's not how it happened. I can't put my life story into that structure. And that's true, because life stories are really messy. They don't have clear beginnings and endings. It's up to us to superimpose a structure onto them so that it's a story that makes sense to people. So when thinking about structure, keep it really simple. So Pixar does a version of this. They have like 22 tips for for storytelling. That's worth looking up. But there's this game I play. Very simple. It's a story improvisation game, but it's just five lines. And it goes to Freitag, right? 
Once there was, uh, every day, one day, this led to nowadays. Those are your five sentences and that's how they begin. Uh, once there was a young man who decided to join the army. Uh, every day, he had to run 6,456 miles up a hill carrying a large boulder. <laughs> one day, one day, he decided not to carry the boulder anymore and got up the hill three times as fast. Uh, this led to him starting his own running company where no boulders were required and everybody increased speed. Nowadays, he's the richest man in the world who owns a running company. Now, that's just me making up a terrible story because I'm improvising, yeah. right? I'm improvising on a global podcast, just like me. I'll, I'll just show that to the world. <laughs> but that five-line structure keeps with, with fry tags. So it's so it's a it's a really interesting game to play with your own stories because it's super simple, and if you look at every film, if you look at every book you've read, that that's kind of the structure that they all adhere to. Now you can, if you're really good, start with the problem. The building is collapsing. The seven floors are on fire. There are only two teams available to get to the fire, and we know there's six hundred people inside. Yeah. And then you can roll back and say, the reason why there's only two teams available is because there were three other fires that day in Orange County, right? So you don't have to start yeah. with, it was a Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. And, and five teams were called out to the mountains in Orange County, right? You can start with the problem. And as long as you cover the five steps, however you get there is up to you. And for our, for our uh, listeners who are really brave, and if you, if you love Lord of the Rings or... Um, well, let's just stick with Star Wars. Um, now I'm blanking on who wrote Star Wars. What's his name? What, Lucas. Lucas, George Lucas. So he credits um, the book by uh, mythologist and anthropologist Joseph Campbell, The Hero with the Thousand Faces, as literally took the entire 17-stage Hero with the Thousand Faces story structure and built Star Wars on top of that story structure. So for people like me, who when I first heard the idea that there's this story structure that lots of journeys in human existence follow these stages more or less. You might skip one or two, mm -hmm. um, but it's very unlikely. Mm -hmm. I thought that sounds unlikely. Mm. And of course, you do enough digging and you hear enough people reflect on the books and the films and the stories that so many of us love. And to the extent that we believe George Lucas is a good storyteller, the fact that he credits entirely... <laughs> The Hero with a Thousand Faces, um, when I first picked up the book and read it, even though it's a, it's a tough read in places, yeah. you realize I, as a on the human journey, I'm really not that unique. Um, we're kind of all following yeah. the same cycle in a way, Yeah. Um, which is all just to say that structure has really helped me understanding that there's a, again, there's an inciting incident or a setup, there's a... A, a problem mm -hmm. or a progressive complication that uh, turns into a crisis that has a climax and has a resolution. And if I question myself, Claire, whether it's explaining something to a colleague, to yeah. you know, teaching with MCT, something in business, some um, uh, keynote speech, if I don't bring folks on that five-stage structure, yeah, then I feel herky-jerky, and the presentation is is a little bit sloppy. Yeah. Whereas if you start and they know that's what you're doing, your audience will relax into it. And yeah. unless you make a major, major mistake and leave out one of those five, 
they're with you till the end because they know. They know the little markers. There's going to be a resolution. Coleman's going towards them. Like, we can settle yeah. in. So, yeah. Yeah. You have um, you have a bunch of functional uh, things in here. Let's get technical, such as the story is not the same as a mission report, which we, we <laughs> covered, you know, kind of like that. You've already mentioned if you see it, we see it. Um, as I'm saying, um, you mentioned the standard verbal ticks, um, <laughs> and ah, uh, which takes some, it takes some practice to, you know, get out of your language, so to speak. They definitely do. But the quick trick for anyone listening is as you notice what your verbal tick is, first of all, just observe it, realize everyone has one. And second of all, as you go to do that, um, or ah, uh, take a breath instead. Yeah. And as you train yourself out of that, those verbal ticks will disappear. I think it's great, Claire, that you mentioned in in your notes here that I was pre-reading that the audience is typically, you can see, I've caught myself doing it a thousand times, but you can see people sometimes rushing from fact to fact and topic to topic. It, I think it's really encouraging to hear you say, you, you have more reps at this than any of us do, that the audience is typically a couple of seconds behind you. So you have space to pause and not try to fill in you know, empty air. This is, this is essential, right? Because our, because of the amount of anxiety around public speaking, it's some people consider it the number one fear in the world, which I find quite funny. That's bigger than the fear. Snakes and spiders or something, right? But that means, Colin, it's bigger than the fear of death. Like, come on. But there's a bunch of reasons why that that fear is there, but you have to look at what that fear does to you as a speaker. What it does is it's for most people. I've, I've seen, I've seen the rare opposite to this, but for most people it speeds you up. And like yeah. you say, you know, if you start to unpack that, you're speeding up because one, you don't want to be there. You want to get off stage as quickly as possible. You want to get through it and be at the other side. So like you say, you say fact after fact after fact. And the sports coaches are talking about this too. They're really aware of this. I'm just going to get all this out there. I'm going to get it all out there and then, and then I can right. be done. So it's this desire for relief and whatever else is going on in your psyche. What ends up happening, and we've all seen this, is we have to sit there and listen. And by the time you've gotten to the third point, we no longer know what's happening because you're rushing so fast. If you take a breath, your relationship to time when you're speaking is massively different to your audience's relationship to time. A breath, two seconds, feels like an eternity. You're standing there going in your head, your brain's going, oh my God, everyone's looking at me. Yes. I'm going to get the next bit wrong. This is really uncomfortable. Rah, 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 right? What your audience are doing is they're constructing the last thing you said. The wind blew through over the water and it turned my bones to ice. That's what they're They're doing. They're catching up. They're seeing the wind and the waves and the water and Coleman's body in the water and his bones like ice. Okay, I'm with you. What next? So that breath, you're actually doing your audience a favor. Now, Now everyone's going, oh, okay, so you're saying I've got to breathe every, you know, two sentences. Here's the thing with storytelling. This it's a, little bit, it's a little bit annoying, but every strength is a weakness and every weakness is a strength. So everything can be played to its extreme where it no longer serves you. So if you pause every two sentences as your audience, we figure that out. And then we start anticipating it and then we get bored, right? Yeah. So yeah. just enough pauses that you are controlling your speed, but not so much that you're boring your audience. Yeah, lots of variation, right? In all things. <laughs> In all things, <laughs> You know, We're not talking about all things on this team cast, but <laughs> no, but yes, like in all things, but yeah. like, but you know, you, when people say variation, they think, oh, the first thing everyone says is monotone. Yeah, that's the one everyone thinks about. But actually, if I asked you, Coleman, to think about, don't tell me who, 
But think about the worst speakers you've ever seen. It might be someone in your own family, might be a friend, oh. right? Might be a boss. I don't need to know who it is. But for a moment, just just conjure them up in your mind's eye, wherever you are stuck listening to them, right? And listen to them for a sec and tell me, what are they doing technically? They're, uh, it, to me, it feels like they're not doing anything, like that they're inert. Right. It's so boring. <laughs> yeah, it's so boring because like, what? how, how does that inertness uh, manifest itself? I mean, it, it it comes across, well, you know, visually, I mean, it's like the blinking isn't happening, the voice <laughs> variation isn't happening, even the body language it is is stiff. Yeah. It's like you almost want to shake the person, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So we actually know what it means to be a bad speaker, what it means to be a good speaker. And variety is about much more than tone. There's monotone, monorhythm, monopitch mono volume. If I delivered everything at a really loud pace and it was always pitched at that <laughs> level, right? Right? But also yeah. mono emotional range. So you get this sometimes where everything is exciting. Yeah. Right? Hi guys, I'm so glad to see you here today. We're all going to sit down and have a cup of coffee and after the coffee we're going to have a biscuit and after the biscuit I'm going to tell you about the brief. The brief's amazing. By the time you get to the brief I'm so exhausted from your excitement yeah. that I have no excitement left. So when I say variety in all things, I really mean in all things, body language, uh, where you take your your pauses. Now, you, you guys might be listening to that out there and thinking, oh, I'll never be able to do that. But actually, you do it all the time. You do it now. You're doing Everyone it. Everyone does it. Yeah. Naturally, you don't speak in a monorhythm or cadence. It's just that when you get tense and anxious, you lock down your natural instincts. And some of the yeah. other stuff you can be coached out of. Yeah, yeah. Let's... um. As you know, Claire, we do, I say we do a segment at the end, which we do. It's called What to Do on Monday. Oh, yeah. Um, but I kind of feel like we do it all throughout the team cast. At times, I don't really know when I ask it, but I do remember to ask it at the end. Uh, so a couple of takeaways that we've probably already said, and the way I described it um, with Dan Coyle, mm. which helped us focus in a little bit, was I asked Dan, if you were dropped into a brand new team you knew nothing about and you had some influence, you were the leader of the team, whatever, blah, 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 it doesn't matter. What one skill would you use? Obviously, he wrote the culture code to create great team culture. So for you, Claire, as a storyteller with as many, you know, as we say, at bats at this as as you've had and the conversation that we've had today and the interactions you've had with um, mission critical teams and the courses that we teach, if you were dropped into a new team today, that was an MCT, what one, two, or three skills would you teach from the storytelling perspective that you think are absolutely essential for, for using on Monday? I thought about this because I heard you say it to Dan Coyle. Yeah. And I actually think I do what I did, what I do on the MCT courses, which is, because uh, I'm only with them for like four hours and then we do it. So I know right. it's possible to do in a day. I'd get a storytelling session going at the appropriate time in the day, not first thing. Obviously, everyone sit down. You know, it's not a kumbaya thing, but Get a storytelling session going with uh, by not asking people to tell a story because that never works. Yeah. But by starting with either sharing a story myself or asking someone a question that provokes a memory. And then so creating a space where those stories can be shared. And from that, people will A, get to know each other better, realize to B, that they have a huge amount of shared experience and C, that the knowledge transfer is happening. So, I, I you know, sorry to bang the drum, but I think that's what I would do. I would... I by doing that I would deconstruct the mythology around why storytelling is bad and reconstruct a new culture around uh, 
what you get out of that. I saw one guy turn to another guy after one of our sessions and say, I've never, I've never spoken about that in public. And the other guy said, if you ever want to talk about (laughs) it again, you give me a call, you know? And it's like, there's something that happens. happens. Yeah. Yeah. And that, the, the, the power of that cannot be bottled or sold. Like that can only happen when the group allows it to happen. So that's what I would do on day one. I would, I would just drop that in there. Yeah. One of our teammates for the longest time, a guy named, uh, Jay Hennessy works at the Cleveland Indians now. I think his official title is Director of Learning and Education or something in the professional development realm. But it re- they run a speaker series and amazing speakers have been on it um, from, you know, military folks to other all kinds of folks as, you know, the, the keynote speaker. And then there's a big Q&A session and whatnot, but always talking with Jay on various different topics. And I've never been to a National Outdoor Leadership School backcountry thing here in the U.S., but they go to Alaska, Wyoming, a bunch of other places a bunch of folks that we worked with have done Knowles trips. And one of the things that I know Jay has spoken about a lot, I think um, he, I think the Cleveland Indians have used this technique. I know others have. I'm going to be interviewing uh, Justin Langer, the the head coach for Australian cricket national team here tonight. It's, it's tomorrow for him tonight. But um, he talked about this concept, which is this exercise that Knowles does. And, and I know Justin has done, the, the who am I thing. And Knowles, I believe, does it out on the trail after everyone's warmed up. And that, again, back to this uh, this origin story narrative, why did I join? Mm. Where did we come from? What am I here for? Wrapped into some version of that is, uh, I think, for teams that really want to be high performing, if you fail to execute on that, on some version of the who am I type thing, it's a missed opportunity. 100% agreed. Yeah. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to mention, Claire? I mean, I know we talked about a lot, but there's always more to talk about. I don't, I think we covered all the key stuff. Okay. Um, I was trying to think of like books that manifest this kind of thing, you know, that use story to, to exemplify. So I did think about in relation to MCTs, I think General McChrystal's team of teams mm-hmm. opening, opening two pages, you know, yep. setting the scene, telling the story. Uh, Chris Voss, have you come across that? Uh, Never Split yeah. the Difference? Story. Did you like that book? I did. I like the, I like the way yeah. he uses story and then unpacks the theory. And that's yeah. kind of what the MCTs need to do, right? Um, so, yeah, look at all the stories. He uses so many stories in that. So I suppose look to things like that if you want backup. Those of you in the sports world, like there are lots of coaches who've written books of, you know, anecdotes about their lives and i think that helps make meaning well thanks for spending the time claire i enjoyed the heck out of it and i know the teams love they love having you at the courses so thanks for being a part of the community thanks coleman i hope you got as much out of that conversation as i did with claire as i mentioned early on in our conversation i was extremely skeptical of the reception that claire's content and teaching style would get with our community but the reception at every level of folks engaged with the Mission Critical Team Institute who have heard and seen Claire present all start off with a little trepidation and um, a little bit nervous to stand up and tell of their experience or use Claire's story structures to storytell instead of, you know, dot brief, as we say. But every single time she hits a home run and just wanted to share a personal thank you to Claire Murphy and to say how much I enjoyed the conversation. 
coincidentally, and this was not set up intentionally, the next podcast or the next team cast that you'll hear is with head coach of the Australia men's national team and lifelong cricketer, Justin Langer, a friend of Preston and I's who we met in 2018 when he was taking over the job as head coach of the Australia men's national team. Uh, by the way, if you run the numbers and look at worldwide sports, cricket is the second most watched sport by fan count. Um, it's a, obviously has a huge worldwide following. And Justin and the Australia, well, the Australian men's national team went through a ball tampering scandal in late 2017 or early 2018, and Justin was named the head coach. I was unaware of in the two years since we had met them and he had become the head coach that a videographer and a production guy followed the Australian men's national team around. And Amazon on Amazon Prime, you can find the eight-episode documentary on the Australian men's national team, essentially the turnaround of the team. The documentary is called The Test. And I've said in a couple of forums in the last few months that I was completely taken with the eight episodes of The Test, the documentary, and knowing really nothing about cricket, but watching the documentary which, faces, which focuses mostly on uh, test cricket, which is the five-day-long, I'll just call them games for lack of a better term, that cricket teams play. And I was struck by the long-duration effort punctuated by periods of high intensity, um, which is very similar to many of the jobs that we do with this long-duration effort of deployments or long-duration effort of other types of things that mission critical teams do punctuated by these moments of high intensity. And so I really wanted to uh, have Justin on the show. We reached out to him. He agreed. And one of the funny things I experienced having uh, just released the episode or just released this episode with Claire and then speaking with Justin, and you'll hear it in the episode with him, is he jumped right into talking about how being a great leader and being a great coach for him a big part of it is uh, storytelling and his ability to capture and replay these images for his players in a story arc versus just telling them what to do. I didn't set that up, but I chuckled when he started talking about storytelling, given that we had just spoken to Claire. So stay tuned for the episode with Justin Langer. It's amazing. Um, and then the next couple of episodes you'll hear from uh, Harry Moffitt, very, very close teammate of ours and director of Mission Critical Team Institute in Australia and New Zealand, and also a retired and former uh, SASR soldier from the Australian Army. And then I also going to release an episode with Sean Holes, the director of sports performance at the Cleveland Browns, who spent years as the director of strength and conditioning performance in special operations and then uh, I think six or seven years at another Super Bowl winning NFL team. And now he's at the Cleveland Browns. And I interviewed Sean about the myths and uh, some of the urban legends of performance in general and what's working for folks in mission critical teams. So thanks for listening to this episode with Claire Murphy. I look forward to bringing you the episode with head coach Justin Langer and then subsequently two episodes with uh, Harry Moffitt and also Sean Holes. So thanks for tuning in. Talk to you guys soon. Bye.